Good morning. It's good to see you all. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. I said I was a little heavy-handed in first service, so I'll try to lighten up a little bit on you all. It's just sin, heaven, hell, God, the devil, eternity. Nothing big. Um, nothing to get all worked up about. The Gospel means good news. That's the understatement of the lifetime. So like God, right, to just call something the good news, like God is good. Like he works all things together for good. It's on the same par there. That he would break into eternity, send his son, and that he would come and live a, a sinless life on our behalf and because we're separated from God because of our sin. And that he would go to the cross because the, the price for sin is death. And that he would take our place upon that cross, showing the severity of sin and how it separates us from God. And that he would die, take our place, suffer and die, take our place, and then rise again on the third day to show that he could overcome the grave, overcome the greatest enemy that we have, which is death itself. <laughs> That's the good news. Yes, good news. <laughs> we can go to heaven now. It's good. You know, we don't die. We get to live for eternity. And we put on incorruption. And we sin no longer at that point in time. It's fantastic news. But to back up that claim, to demonstrate that he was worthy of that, able to do that for us, the Gospel of Mark is filled with the miraculous. More than any other gospel, Mark records uh, miracles. Remember, we've seen so many already. We've seen him cleanse lepers and cast out demons. He resurrected a girl from the dead. He miraculously fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He stilled the storm, and then later he walked on the storm. Two more miracles for us this morning in the second half of Mark chapter 7. It's just miracle after miracle. Mark records more miracles in his gospel than he does parables. Again, he has a lot to say to us more about Jesus' doings than his sayings, you might say. And yet even in what he records about what Jesus says, everything is purposeful. Everything is with total intent. Every miracle has a message. Everything he does has purpose. Everything he does, there's specificity to it. There's precision to it. Even in the things that he does not say, we can learn from. Even in the things that he does not do, there's motive behind it. He's speaking to us as a result. He does everything just right. He works all things together for good. He does all things well. Everything he does, he does perfectly. He makes no mistakes. He's flawless in execution. His mannerisms, his timings, his patience, his love, his grace, the way he treated people, his compassion, all of it. And you would expect that, right? If he's God, if he's God, he wouldn't just back up being God with miracles. He would also act like God. He'd be the perfect gentleman. 
He would be the perfect host. He would have perfect love. He'd have compassion. He would know how to talk to people just the right way. He would know how to challenge people and yet at the same time draw out faith in them. And yet he could be gentle in the process of doing all of those things. And that's what we've seen. That's what we see in Jesus, just flawless behavior on his part. But then, you know, every once in a while, he throws us for a little loop, just a little bit off track. We see a, a few examples of that in the second half of Mark chapter 7 this morning. And we've seen a few things along the way, things that Jesus does that seem to us to seem to be kind of bizarre on the surface. Not what we would expect God to do. You know, and the Bible says that his ways are not our ways, but still, we look at God sometimes and go, really? Did he just say that? Did he just do that? And there's some of that in our text this morning, and it's wonderful, actually. It's brilliant. It'll blow your mind away, blew my mind away. But you know, sometimes, like, when... He told them to feed the 5,000. He said, you give them something to eat. Remember that? And at the time when you're reading that, you're going, why would he tell them that when he knows that they couldn't possibly feed the 5,000? Except that we realize that when we're put in a spot ourselves where God asks of us the impossible, we learn how to fully rely on him in those kinds of situations, to trust in him. Or like when he sent them out into the storm. And then we knew that he saw them in the midst of the storm, but he waited to rescue them until the fourth watch of night. Like, why did he wait? Why did he delay his rescue? Except that, you know, when uh, we're in a trial, we know the, the depths of our trial, the extents of our trial enables God to show us just how big he is. The harder the trial, the bigger our God. And so he would allow us to do that. It's a wonderful thing for us to be able to see. So those times are instances in where we can see why he did what he did. But then there are other times where it's harder to see. Like in Mark chapter 5, when he cured the demoniac, that demoniac had a legion of demons inside of him. He cured that demoniac, and then that demoniac begged Jesus that he could follow him and become one of his disciples. And Jesus didn't let him. Which kind of is a head-scratcher, I think. Why wouldn't Jesus want the man now cured of the demon possession to follow him. He wanted everybody else to follow him, and yet he sent him off to Decapolis. And that always bogs the imagination. Why? Well, maybe we'll get a little insight this morning as to why he might have done that. But other things too, like this morning, we're going to see him in a conversation with a woman. Actually, it begins where he gives a woman the cold shoulder. God wouldn't do that ever, would he? He ignores her at first, and then he says something to her, again, on the surface that would seem to be not so politically correct, almost bordering on rude, that he would say that, again, on the surface, that is something that when we look at, we go, well, why did he say that? And yet there's great insight there for us, great learning for us as to what Jesus was doing when he said what he said. Then later on in the second miracle that we're going to look at this morning, when Jesus heals this this. A deaf man, he sticks his fingers in the guy's ears. He spits on the ground and then he touches his tongue. You know, he does things that are, you know, for the sake of uh, being different and mixing it up, but that's kind of bizarre, don't you think? And yet there's meaning, I believe, and purpose and insight in that as well. And so um, as we look at this text this morning, just remember here that our God is good. Our God is he wastes no time. He does everything 
well. He does it all for a purpose. There is nothing meaningless in it. And that's what we're going to get from this morning. It's just a wonderful, I'm really excited to share this with you this morning. Verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, where we picked up from last time, where it says there, from there, and that, that there is the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee. That's where Jesus had been, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Gennesaret and some of those places. From there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is just north of Israel, which would be like modern-day Lebanon. So he's now, for the first time and only time that I know of, outside of the borders of Israel, which is unusual for Jesus because we know that he came primarily and first and foremost to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his mission, to Israel first. And so by stepping now for the first time outside of the borders of Israel, it could just be that what he's communicating to us is that this is a microcosm of what was to come in the book of Acts and later on up until this day, a room full of examples of what this was the beginning of, which is his first effort to reach out to the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And not just the Jews, not just the, the children of the covenant, but non-Jews, people like you and I as well. And here's a perfect example of sort of the beginnings of that. Still verse 24, it says that he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Verse 25, for a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And of course, where else are you going to go when you're in this kind of a situation? Imagine being a mom for just a minute with a daughter with an unclean spirit that is demon-possessed. Where else are you going to go? There's nowhere else, be honest. Even if you're here this morning and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah, that's where you'd go, wouldn't you? Instinctively, you just know that's the only hope that you have. And this woman knows that as well. A lot of people, I think, know that too, but they resist coming to Jesus for the reason that we talked about last week. I think oftentimes people think that they've got to clean up their act first before they can come to God. You know, I've got to stop cursing or drinking or womanizing or whatever the case may be i got to get cleaned up before i can come to church and we said last week it actually works just the reverse this is the cleaning process right here being here studying god's word hanging out with him getting to know him a little bit better now this woman though however does not have that problem she is totally aware of the fact that she is not worthy she doesn't struggle in the least bit with that in fact she probably thinks, or she would at least have reason to think, that Jesus might not even give her the time of day. And the reason why is, we're told in verse 26, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. So that means that she would be a descendant of the Canaanites. So remember the land of Canaan in the Old Testament? That's the promised land where God took the Israelites to. And God had promised to, to give that land to them, and they conquered that land. But even after Joshua, and crossing over into the land, conquered most of the land, there were a few survivors of the Canaanite race. And this woman right here is a descendant of those survivors. Now, the Jewish people, for the most part, despised what was the leftovers of that people. They looked at them very much down upon them as the scum of the earth. Literally, they referred to them as 
Gentile dogs. And you can tell by the way this woman talks that she would have been aware of that. She would have been familiar with such things. And yet we're told there, end of verse 26, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, what's interesting, a couple things about this is that this Gentile woman, in approaching Jesus, she refers to Jesus as the son of David. The son of David is a messianic title, a title that would have referred to the Old Testament promise for the Messiah. So this is a woman right away, we can tell, that would have been familiar with the things of the Jews, would have been familiar with the Jewish religion, would have been familiar with their customs, would have been familiar, no doubt, with the Jewish people's utter disdain for who she was, for the fact that she was a descendant of the Canaanites, that she was a Gentile dog. Now you add to that what we also know from Matthew's gospel, which is when she first reaches out to Jesus, it says Jesus, quote, he answered her not a word. He gave her the silent treatment, which by the way, is kind of what I think she would have expected him to do. Even for a religious leader in Israel, being that her background was a descendant of the Canaanites, a Gentile, she would probably expect that he wouldn't want to give her the time of day. And nevertheless, this woman is persistent. Again, there, back in verse 26, it says, she kept asking. And the idea is perpetually, over and over again, she keeps asking him to cast this demon out of her daughter. Persistent, persistent, persistent. You know, there is something to be said about a persistent kind of faith. I'm not suggesting that we can win God's favor if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have God's favor, period, by virtue of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. But at the same time, I do think there's something to be said about being tested as it relates to our faith. And that a faith that requires persistence is a faith that will be strengthened over time. And that's why God would allow that in us. Think about it. What if everything in Christianity came so easy? You know, what if every time, like, I had, you know, a little shoulder issue, like I did when I was trying to sleep last night, I just said, hey, Lord, I'm having trouble sleeping. Could you work this out? And then, boom, I went to sleep, and I was fine. You know, and then, Lord, I'm having this kind of issue with my wife. Do you think you could? No problem, Joe. I got it. And just every time, I, I, financial issue, God, and then there's a check in the mail just waiting for me. I wouldn't have the intimacy with God that I would, you know, need to have with God if that was how Christianity worked, if it was that easy, you know? So it's not, in a sense, God allows us to be tested. The Savior's silence, so to speak, and I don't know that God is ever silent, but when we perceive that he is silent, or have you ever prayed and you felt like God wasn't answering your prayers? You know, have you ever felt like that before? Maybe in a sense what he's doing is testing our faith. Maybe he's not cultivating in us a more persistent, a more determined kind of faith. Because what we're going to see is that that is the kind of faith that Jesus is trying to draw out of this woman. It's on display for us to learn from and to glean from, but in order to draw this faith out, he's going to say something that at first glance, I think, might just shock you ever so slightly. But Jesus said to her, verse 27, let the children be filled first for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That's right. He said that. Wow. <laughs> Did you just call her a dog? 
So the idea is there's like a dinner table, right? And the Jews are at the table, and us Gentiles were little dogs in Jesus' mind. Fascinating, fascinating passage right there. Well, let me explain. First of all, principally speaking, it is true that Jesus came first for the Jew and second for the Gentile, right? The miracles and the teachings were first centered towards, uh, pointed towards, directed towards the Jew first and then the Gentile. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, in speaking of uh, the gospel, says it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, but for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. So that's a principle of scripture that Jesus came first for the Jews and then afterwards the church would focus on Gentiles. But there's also another little inside thing that you need to know here, which is in the Greek language they used two words for dog at that time. One was for the kind of dog that would roam the streets, you know, uh, scavengers. They would eat garbage, they were unsafe, you didn't want your children around them, that kind of thing. And that is the kind of dog that the Jews referred to the Gentiles as. Really, no respect. Very demeaning kind of dog. The word that Jesus uses here in the original language for dog means Fido. Not really, but you know what I mean. Your pet, your little puppy, like your dog at home, the one that you love. It's a, a term of genuine you know, love and affection in a lot of ways. Now, he is still, though, allowing her to think, relatively speaking, that She's kind of on a different plane than the Jews at this point in time, okay? He's fully aware of the fact that this would have been an insult for Gentiles to feel like dogs in comparison to Jews. But he softens the blow a little bit by saying, hey, you know, it isn't right to take the, ch f the food away from the children and give it to the little puppies underneath the table. By doing this, he is reestablishing the principle that Jew first and then Gentile, okay? but he is also drawing out in her a response. He's going to elicit from her a response that is so remarkable, so uncanny, so uncommon of faith that you know that's exactly why Jesus said what she said. This just blesses you. I got to believe when you read this. She said, and she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. That's awesome. Now, I've never seen someone answer one of Jesus' mini parables with a little mini parable of their own. Now, here's a woman right here, maybe one of the most underrated stories in the Bible. She might be one of the most underrated characters in all of the Bible. Because here's what she's saying. She's saying, Lord, I realize I'm not a Jewish person. I realize I'm not one of the chosen people. I realize I'm not one of the covenant people. I realize that. I don't get a seat at the table. I'll settle for the crumbs. I'll settle for the crumbs. That's very fascinating. See, she knew who he was. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. You are God. She knew that. She knew who the Jewish people were. They were God's chosen. They were the children of the covenant. She understood that. She also knew her place, that she was a descendant of the Canaanites, the group that God had ordered to be wiped out. She got that. She knew she could not trust in her pedigree, so to speak, but maybe, hopefully, she could trust in God's grace and mercy. Because we even know along the way that as in the Old Testament, anytime 
that anyone, a Gentile, showed faith in God. God showed them mercy. Maybe this woman was a student of the scriptures. Know that even in the conquest of Canaan, that at times God showed mercy on Gentiles who had faith in him. You think about the story of Rahab. Rahab was a woman who not only was a Gentile living in Jericho in a pretty wicked place, but she was a harlot as well. She was a prostitute. And yet she took in the Hebrew spies, protected them, hid them because she had heard about God. She had heard about and believed in the power and the miraculous nature of the Israelite God. And so not only did God protect her and her family, but then even had her be a part of the messianic lineage. She became an ancestor of the Son of God of Jesus Christ. So maybe this woman knows a little bit about the Old Testament, the Bible, and she's going, I know that God has a plan for Gentiles. I know God can be merciful in the life of Gentiles. And now that he's extended his journey beyond Israel, is that not maybe possibly a signal that he is willing to begin reaching out to someone like me, even though I'm a lowly, lowly Gentile? Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus does not correct her in her humility. He doesn't say, oh no, you poor thing. I don't mean to suggest that you're a lesser person than the Jews. He doesn't, he's not so quick to bail her out along those lines. He allows her to think of herself as a dog. And here's the thing, I know that this is gonna be kinda strange, but listen, please listen. It's actually quite helpful what Jesus does. It's very purposeful because she, listen, she values the crumbs more than the entire nation had valued the table that had been put before them, that he was willing to provide so bountifully for them. So she had an informed faith, she had a persistent faith, but she also had a humble faith. Lord, I, I don't need to be at the table, I'll settle for the crumbs. Oh, God help our hearts to have that kind of faith combined with that kind of humility where people could treat us like a dog and we would be happy with what we have coming our way. I know that's hard to hear, but let me tell you something, and I don't want to belabor the point, that the happiest creatures I know are dogs <laughs> who are treated like dogs. And they are happy for the crumbs that they get. My dog will wait as I go through a sleeve of Ritz. If I would just drop a few crumbs on the ground, she's in heaven and she loves it. I think we think sometimes if we would just be treated better and if we were just given a little bit more, we'd be happier. And I'm not so sure that that's true. My guess is if we would be happy with what we get and if we had a lesser view of ourselves, then God would lift us up. But the tendency, the flesh goes, who are you calling God? Who are you calling dog? Who do you think you are to talk to me that way? That's how the flesh operates. But notice she doesn't do that. What a testimony she is to us. She doesn't debate the point with the Lord. She accepts her low place. In fact, she asks Jesus to minister to her in that low place. I don't need, need to be at the table, Lord. Just, you know, don't even the little dogs get some crumbs underneath the table. Ironside once said, nothing appealed to our blessed Lord more than faith coupled with humility. And you can tell by our Lord's response here, verse 29, then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, 
the demon has gone out of your daughter. And this is what he says in Matthew's gospel. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Very rare that the Lord Jesus would call anything great. We sing he's good. We say he does all things well. We say he works all things together for good. But this woman's faith is great. I think just remarkable, rewarded for someone just trusting in God. And verse 30, when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. You could only imagine you moms that have a daughter. Could you imagine the helplessness of having a daughter in a situation like this? tell you what there are probably some moms here today who have a daughter maybe that's not demon possessed but that the enemy seems to have a stranglehold on right now and you're praying for that daughter and I, I'm, I don't know anything about being a mom but you keep praying for her because if you won't nobody else will you just keep praying you just keep praying how do you not know that God wants to glorify his name through persistent faith. That's what she found out. She found out her faith was proven. She found out that God's crumbs are better than the world's entrees. And if God's crumbs are miracles, if God's crumbs have power over the demonic realm, then what is the main course going to be like in heaven for those of us Gentiles now who do have a place at the table. That's going to be something, isn't it? So the second story, verse 31, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of, circle that, Decapolis, to the Sea of Galilee. Now that was a 10-city region, Greek-operated, Roman-controlled, Rome away from Rome, they called it. And so Jesus goes from one Gentile area to another. Now the difference is, when he goes up to modern-day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon, up there. When he goes up there, there's basically, to the best of our knowledge, one woman that hunts him down. Here, an entire multitude we're going to see is waiting for him. Why? Any guesses? Speculate here. But here's my guess, tying in what we began with this morning that it could very well be that the demoniac, the former demoniac, who Jesus cured, he sent him where? To Decapolis, to Gentile territory. I think that guy did his job, don't you? And when people showed up, could you imagine? Now here's the thing, from his perspective at the time when Jesus said, no, you can't follow me, you need to go to Decapolis, he's probably bummed. Sometimes in our lives, the Lord has a plan for our lives and we see it a different way and we have to be willing to do what he wants. He knows what's best. If he does all things well, if he works all things for good, if he knows what's best, if he's perfect, if all of his motives, if all of his decisions, if everything he does is for the best, then we have to trust him in that. That's what it would appear that this man did in going to Decapolis. So then verse 32, they brought to him one who was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitude. Jesus does that sometimes. He didn't always do that, but he did that sometimes. 
You know, it's interesting that Jesus does that because he so desires to minister to the individual. You know, most ministry works that way. Most ministry is personal with God. We see a lot of stuff in church or music or, you know, public displays of, you know, a Christian concert or whatever the case may be. But most ministry happens in your heart, one-on-one with the Lord. It's not a show for God where God earns points. And here was God, he's in a situation, Jesus says, where his popularity level sort of diminishing at this point, chronologically speaking. He could have used a bump in the polls in his popularity rating, but he pulls this person aside because he sees the person behind that disability. He sees that person. To everybody else, that person was a, a, a magic show waiting to happen. Let's see if Jesus can do this. A YouTube video gone viral but to jesus it was a person i think we have a tendency sometimes to see people for their limitations for their weakness for their wheelchair for their condition for their disease jesus sees the person the soul that he created behind that it's a special way in which he ministers to each one of us and that's why he i believe is so careful in how he particularly ministers to this man it says he put his fingers in his ears (laughs) You want to try this right now, just real quick, to the person on the side of you? First person to do a wet willy, Jesus Christ. And he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue, and then looking up to heaven, he sighed. You can circle that also. I love that part. And the reason I love that part is because the Holy Spirit didn't have to tell us that. He could have just said, Jesus came in, he met this guy who was deaf and mute, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he touched his tongue, and he spat, and he cried out to heaven, and the man was cured. But before he cures him, before he cries out to heaven, it says he sighed. Again, it's those subtleties. It's those details. They're there for a reason. God's communicating something to us through that. You think about when you sigh, when a person size. It's unplanned. It's involuntary. You don't look up and say, well, you know, at about 12, 15 today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sigh. <clears throat> now you come across a situation where, you know, something hits your heart. Something cuts to the heart, strikes you, causes you to groan in your heart, to sigh. And in a sense, I think that that's exactly what happens. Jesus sighed here when he's faced with this man's need, this obvious need, and also with the effects of sin. Not to say that this man was in this condition because of his sin, but just because of sin in general, right? That we live in a fallen world. And whether or not we will ever be deaf or blind or in a chair, inevitably you live long enough and you will, right? You will go through these kinds of things because of the effects of sin. It takes every single one of us. And so Jesus, he just looks at this and he just sighs. He looks at the need that we have that humanity's need, our needs, whether they're emotional, whether they're spiritual, whether they're physical, Jesus is able to look into your heart right now and he sighs. You understand that about our God? That he knows, he knows your heartbreak this morning. He knows what you're going through. He knows the distance in your marriage. He knows what it is that's defeating you. He knows what's discouraging you right now. He knows that there's something that is weighing on you, a relationship, a problem that's not resolved, some kind of friction between you and someone else. He knows about that. 
He knows about how you've let people down and you feel bad about that. He knows about your financial situation. He's able to look inside your heart and he sighs when he does that. And so every time, and this is why we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible so that when you would come back to this chapter, every time you look at verse 34 and you see that Jesus sighed, it would bless you. It would bless you thinking, my Lord sighs when he thinks about me, when he looks into my heart, when he knows the difficulty that I'm going through in my life. You know, growing up in our hymn books, there was a song and one of the songs had a chorus that went like this, just to know that he knows. Maybe some of you remember that one, just to know that he knows. In other words, it's enough just to know that God knows what I'm going through. That's good enough for me. Whether he takes care of it right now or in a year or in eternity, just to know that he knows is good enough for me. And that, I think, in part tells us why Jesus goes about how he's going to heal him. I told you before, it's kind of bizarre, the method that he uses. But I think that there's reason even behind this. So he put his fingers in his ears, he spat and touched his tongue, and he said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. Now, we know that sometimes Jesus just mixed up his methods just to prove that there was no method, that there was nothing that we could reproduce in order to cure blindness or someone being deaf or to make someone walk. But at the same time, you just wonder, you just wonder if Jesus isn't specifically identifying with this man's need by the way he heals him. Because he does four things, right? He sticks his fingers in his ears. Why? Because he could not hear. He could not hear what Jesus was saying to him. So he's identifying with him by sticking his fingers in his ears. Number two, he spits on the ground. It's quite possible men and women that had speech impediments in that day would use, uh, they would lose the use of their tongues. And so Jesus, by spitting, this man would see that. He would be communicating something to him. I know, I understand what you cannot do. And then he touches his tongue. Why? Because he wasn't able to form words. Who knows how long he had had this condition, whether he was born with it or was something developed over time. But it's hard to speak rightly if you can't hear rightly. And so Jesus touches his tongue too. And you just wonder if Jesus isn't saying, I know you can't hear. I know you've lost the use of your tongue. I know you can't speak anymore. I understand that. I know what you're going through. I'm here with you in this moment in time really resonating with him, resonating in such a way that when this man would be healed finally, he would never forget that. He would never forget what Jesus did. He would never forget that Jesus went to that extent to be that specific in how he ministered to him. Probably everyone here, when you came to Jesus Christ, for those of you that did come to Jesus Christ, you remember at least one or two points in your life where God really got a hold of you. You know, where he, he got a hold of you or where you rededicated your life or something happened in your life where God ignited a fire in you and he met you in a specific way, in a way in which only God could do because only he would know that that was the only way he could get you. And that was exactly what he did. So unique, so wonderful. From one moment to, this, to the next, this guy to be deaf and to not be able to speak. And then verse 35, immediately his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And then he, meaning Jesus, commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they 
proclaimed it. Wish we would like work that in the opposite today, you know. <laughs> he tells us to tell, and we don't tell very many people. He told them, don't tell anyone, and they told everyone. <laughs> I can kind of understand why, I mean, they weren't supposed to disobey him here, but I can kind of understand why, considering what they had just seen and the reaction here, verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes, he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. They were astonished beyond measure. And the word for astonished there is a word that scholars have a hard time translating into English. It literally means to strike out of one's self-possession, whatever that means. It means to completely lose self-control. It's like um, you were watching the cartoons when you were younger, <laughs> and there'd be a cartoon character, like a cartoon dog or something like that, and they would see something that amazed them, and their eyeballs would go boing, 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 boing. That's literally what this word means in the Greek. Literally. A cartoon character going boing, boing, boing. That's what it means. You don't believe me, huh? All of that summed up by that wonderful saying there in verse 37, he has done all things well. It's one of my favorite expressions in all of the Bible and one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible that he does all things well. Well, so like God, isn't it? He said the woman's faith was great, but he does all things well in his word. That's what's recorded. Takes you back to Genesis, right? He created light from nothing, and he called it good. He created the land and the sea, and he called it good. He created the fruit of the earth, and he called it good. It's good. You know, if I make dinner for my wife, I, I hope she goes, that's good, you know. <laughs> he creates the heavens and the earth. That's good, you know. I think it's good. Heals people, casts out demons. It's good. What the Father did in creation, the Son does in redemption. He does all things well. Listen, even if it doesn't seem like it to you at this moment in time. God doing all things well cannot be measured by ease. It's measured by what God is producing within your heart for the betterment of his kingdom. Think about it. Who wants to sign up to be the deaf man here? Any takers? To live a life, who knows how long, where you can't hear, and as a result, it affects your speech simply so that at some point in time, God can come along and glorify his name by healing you. That's your lone purpose in life. Or even worse, who wants to sign up to be that woman? Totally anonymous. Her name is not mentioned in the Bible. Will we even know who she was in heaven? I don't know. Totally anonymous, a picture of faith and humility that is incredibly uncommon in scripture. Again, I think one of the most underrated characters in all of the Bible. And yet, what does she have to endure? She has to endure, and we don't know how long, but her daughter being demon-possessed. Who wants to sign up for that? Not a single one of us would want to sign up for that. 
but it brings great glory to Jesus Christ and gives us a great model of faith for you and for me. You know, I don't know that if I had known in advance what was going to come with the territory of ministry that I would have signed up either. <laughs> On the other side of that, before I came to Christ, I don't know that I would have done that. I don't know that I would have come here to this church if I had known what it would have come with ahead of time. Being a man of flesh, I'm just being honest with you. You think about the decisions that I make as a pastor. You don't want to make any of those decisions. They're painful as can be. You, we want to buy some paint. I don't want to buy paint. It's God's money all of a sudden. Freaking out about that kind of thing. We would go and we went, Mike didn't demo these rooms back here in the fellowship hall because they were going to be children's ministry rooms. And like a month later, I said, uh, no, we're going to have to open that up for the fellowship hall. Good job, pastor. Way to hear from the Lord. Good, good stewardship there. <laughs> the decisions that we make that we're accountable for, what's God teaching us? He's teaching us the value of a dollar. Every day, look at the projects, the things that we're doing step by step. God gives us a vision. I'm telling you, he's given us a vision. And we're helpless because we don't have what we need to do what we need to do, and yet God finds a way to do it. The way that we you know, estimated what it would cost to do the things that we've done already, we didn't have the money in there. And God provided along the way. It's just, we have to be patient. We just have to allow him to do it. He does, we turn around, we go, it's good, God. You do all things well. You do all things well and even causing us to wait upon you. I think about how being in the ministry and being a Christian comes with hurt and pain and rejection and constant self-doubt. I think about how the Christian life sometimes is you know, leads people to think that it's going to be easy, but it's really actually not easy. It's hard because there are Christians involved. And we run across each other and we hurt each other sometimes. And it's painful. We let people down and people let us down. And some of that pain, some of that hurt, times in your ministry, there are people in this room that at times they looked up at God and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it anymore. And even in that, I look back at those moments in which I was ready to throw in the towel and I go, he does all things well. Because even in that, he brought me to the place that I needed to be, where my heart needed to be, where he could best utilize me. It was only if I was ready to give it back to him. He does all things well. I even think about personal failure. Things that, consequences in your life and mine that we're experiencing today. Because of the choices that we've made we're still experiencing those consequences now, but we learned lessons through that failure that we would not, have learned, would not have learned otherwise, could not have learned otherwise, because he does all things well, even in the way that he chastises us, even in the way that he allows consequences to come into our lives. I think about how he does all things well and how he exhorts his church and how he gives us a vision for doing church. He tells us to preach the word, he tells us uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we teach systematically through the scriptures. He says, do the work of an evangelist. It's hard to do the work of an evangelist. It's hard to think if we just preach the word that there's going to be anybody's going to be interested in that. When you've got churches with light shows and all kinds of fancy things, and all we do is we've got the Bible, we don't even have PowerPoint. And we've got to trust in God that that's going to be good enough. Preach the word. He tells us also that we should do everything decently and in order. 
That's another thing that shows that he does all things well. He wants us to do all things well. You know, people come and they come early and they vacuum the carpet. They keep the parking lot clean and the children's ministry safe for our kids. You know, it's not the crystal cathedral, but it is doing all things well as unto God to put our best foot forward along those lines. I think about how God says that in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, talking about the church functioning, that we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. Whose philosophy is that? What motto is that of what corporation? Who stands behind submission as being the way to get things done in this world? And that's exactly what he says for the church. And it's the only way the church works is if we in humility submit to one another, one to another, we submit to one another in the fear of God. We lay down our pride for the betterment of each other. And then also I think about how he says, you will be known as my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It's another thing he does well. He says, you want to be my, my disciple? Then you love each other. It's a word of love each other. We got people in this church, they're like supernaturally gifted to just love you and love me. We get loved on by people, encouraged by people all the time. This is something we have to keep doing. We can never stop doing this. We can never stop doing this. Because there's a very real sense in which, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat this, that the enemy does not like the teaching of his word. And I've firsthand seen spiritual warfare takes place, has been taking place lately in this church where the enemy's not happy with it. He will attack and so we will need to love each other in the midst of that or we'll turn on each other. We'll need to submit to each other or we won't be able to support each other. So important. He does all things well. He says love and submit and you'll get along fine and you'll be an example to the world around you. I think about, when I think about he does all things well, I think about what he did in saving us. I think about how he went to that cross how he died on the cross for our sins. That was good, huh? It was good that he went to the cross. It was good that he resurrected. He did that well, huh? He did that well when he resurrected from the dead. That was well done, Jesus. And then I think about what he did, not just in saving us because of his sacrifice on the cross, but I think about what he did in breaking through the stronghold in each of our lives that we put up in resisting his love and his grace and his mercy and becoming a child of God. Each one of you knows what that is, that stronghold you put up. Maybe for months, years after he was calling you. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. Not coming to you, God. Don't want that grace. Don't want that love. And he kept maneuvering, kept working around. He kept speaking to your heart. He kept trying to love on you. He kept showing you supernatural things that only he could do. He does all things well. That word all is a big word that disqualifies all of us. But it's a word that is unfailingly true of no one else but Jesus Christ. He does all things well this morning. Lord.